Bridges are iconic structures that shape and are shaped by the communities that they serve and the topographies that they overcome. With a single construction project, people, economies, countries, even whole continents can be transformed. Long-span bridges have repeatedly pushed the technological and material limits of the day and tested the stamina of the engineers that designed and built them. Our guest today is himself an icon among these iconic structures. And in this episode, Engineering Matters producer John Young heads to the Institution of Civil Engineers in London to talk with a man whose tenacity and unrivalled understanding of structural performance has pushed the limits of connectivity and created bridges that have literally changed the world. He has pioneered engineering solutions that have been replicated and built upon for many mega projects. A master of fixed-linked construction, he draws on a range of engineering disciplines to improve and advance bridge construction. His bridges are both beautiful architectural sculptures and staggering feats of engineering. He is an alumni of the Imperial College of London, has a PhD in civil engineering. In 2011, he was awarded the Fellowship of the City of Guilds of London Institute for his outstanding contribution to the field of civil engineering. In 2013, he was awarded the Institution of Civil Engineers Gold Medal, a much coveted award recognising excellence in engineering. In 2018, he was awarded a CBE for his services to engineering. And most importantly, in 2018, he was named the Institution of Civil Engineers Engineering Superhero. Dr. Robin Sham, what stands out most about your career to date is the sheer complexity of the bridge structures that you have worked on, and notably that they get increasingly difficult with time. Like the stage-by-stage -stage bridge erection method that you pioneered for cable-stayed bridge construction, each of your projects builds upon the one that came before it in terms of engineering knowledge and bridge technology. But before we launch into some of the most interesting aspects of this, we'd like to know what inspired you in the first place to become a bridge designer. Ever since I was a child, I've always been fascinated by bridges. To me, bridges connect people in places, not only physically, but emotionally as well. And in my younger days, I was quite strong in mathematics and physics. I thought uh, if I could master these techniques and be creative, then the outcome would be very physical, very tangible. Bridges are there for people to use and for people to admire. So looking back, I wouldn't miss it for the world. Dr. Sham, by the 1990s, you were working on some of the UK's leading bridges. They were pushing the limits on design and the techniques that they were using. The Second Seven Crossing connecting England and Wales was one of your first projects. Can you tell us about that? In the Second Seven Crossing project, there were numerous innovations developed. It was the first time anywhere in a major crossing on which we actually design, develop, fabricate, and install wind barriers on the bridge. Second Seven is a very high-level crossing. If you travel from the Avon side into Gwent, your car initially would be sheltered by an escarpment, so you're protected from crosswind, and suddenly you come out of the escarpment and onto the long crossing, and the crosswind will cause destabilize effects uh, on your vehicles. We 
study the use of uh, wind barriers in the wind tunnel and in a motor car testing track. We put furniture vans, high-sided vehicles, to run along the test track, and then we blow wind on the vehicles and, and measure the overturning effects. The result is the world's first ever use of uh, wind barriers on, the, on a bridge crossing. And then were you working simultaneously on the Abbeyfeldy Bridge in Scotland or did that come off? Indeed, I was working simultaneously. Okay, and this was the world's first all-fibre reinforced concrete structure. The one thing I remember very clearly, and I have photographs in my album, we were scratching our heads as to how best to build that bridge. We were inspired by trapezes in a circus, like when people swing. We open up the cable network. At the bottom of two hangers, there's a cross beam. So each one of them, each one of the assembly, two, two cables and a cross beam form a trapeze. So we open up the cable network system or a number of trapezes. Then we pull the, the composite deck over the trapezes and slotted them into place. So that's, uh, that's quite ingenious, actually. The interesting thing is, like many types of bridge construction, the marine operation is very expensive. So although this is only a footbridge, if we were to operate from inside the river, that would be quite difficult. So this uh, trapeze system and pulling the deck girder across and slot it into final position, that completely dispenses with any operation in the water. So it, it was quite clever. So you took this knowledge and expertise to your first international project, the Kapshuman Bridge and Mawan Viaduct in Hong Kong. The 430-meter span Kapshuman Bridge was required to connect the new international airport in Hong Kong to the city ahead of the handover to China in 1997 and is still considered one of the most difficult cable-stayed bridges ever constructed. In the submission to the 1997 British Consultant of the Year Awards, it reads... What ensued was a legend underpinned by triumphs and heartaches. In that legend, we found experience, and with that experience, we offer hope. Can you tell us more about the Kapsumin Bridge? So we perceive this bridge, this structure, as a a tunnel in the sky. Both the Kapsumin Cable State Bridge and the Marwan Concrete Rider, they are two-level structures with the traffic running on the top deck and the trains for the airport rail running in the lower deck. What is unusual about it in that part of the world for many months in the year, they suffer strong hurricanes, which they call typhoon. So when the typhoon attacks the territory, the upper deck will have to be closed for the protection of the traffic. And the traffic will be diverted to the lower deck in a shelter environment. 
the the design wind speed uh, in Hong Kong uh, against uh, flutter instability is 95 meter per second. That's the highest compared to anywhere in the world. So the uh, the deck girder is double composite with the webs, you know, fabricated in steel. And the top roll deck in concrete and the rail deck in the you know lower uh, part of the of the structure also in concrete hence we call it steel concrete double composite and the erection method was to build the deck girder from the the two pylons towards the middle the backspans they were of in situ concrete construction on one side it was incrementally launched. On the other side, it was built on force work, on scaffolding. So for the main span of the cable stabilizer, it was built by a cantilever uh, method of uh, erection. So in each cycle, we lift one girder segment from a barge in the choppy water up to close to its final level and then we connect the new segment to the tip of uh, of the cantilever. Now normally you could if you wanted to complete the bridge and then you come back at leisure and build the track work. We did not have the luxury of the of the alternative uh, uh, method that is built the bridge to completion and come back to set out and lay the track work for the railway. We couldn't do that because we were racing against time. We were all in a mad panic to complete the bridge construction uh, in time for the airport opening. It's actually It was actually worse than that because before uh, the bridge is entirely completed, we needed to hand over the railway envelope in the lower deck to the Mass Transit uh, Corporation, which which is the uh, railway authority in that part of the world. We need to hand over the envelope to them, completed for they to install the signaling, you know, uh, electrical mechanical equipment. So the setting out and construction of the railway track work did not have the luxury <laughs> of the the whole time scale right up to bridge completion. So the handover of the rail envelope was Free. called and failure free. is not an option. That was the life we live uh, in that era. Now, not many people thought this project was going to be completed on time, including your bosses back in London, thought the possibility of achieving the, the key day three was unlikely. Can you tell us about the moment that the two cantilevers reached and, uh, and, and describe for us the methodology that you developed in the the predict and survey, adjust and predict cycle. We built 
the bridge in two halves with a method we call a cantilever method. We lift the 500-ton segments one by one and connect each one to the tip of a cantilever. There were two cantilevers, left-hand side and right-hand side. So incrementally, the cantilevers kind of they uh, migrate towards the middle of the main span. And picture in your mind's eye, the two cantilevers they were going up and down like a yo-yo uh, because of displacement. And because of uh, wind effect, because of time-dependent effects, you know, shrinkage and creep, and uh, the influence of other natural phenomena. So it would be impossible to set out and then install the track work, you know, inside a moving structure. And we started looking for something so, uh, that could resolve this teething uh, problem. We we were inspired by a technique used in tunnel engineering. There, they carry out surveys and map out the three-dimensional surface of the interior of a tunnel, and then they set out the geometric, like. Uh, vertical and lateral uh, dimensions of the track work relative to the tunnel. But hold on, a tunnel in the ground is stationary. Well, we were working to two cantilevers moving up and down. So the, the tunnel technology, when applied to a tunnel in the air, that wasn't sufficient. How did we solve the problem then? I was inspired by uh, a, a survey prediction and then the adjustment kind of concept is uh, when applied to an erection cycle, we carry out survey of the S-built cantilever and then we predict into the future to to uh, assess how the structure will move and how it may end up, you know, in three dimension in the next cycle. Then we set out uh, the track work and we do the survey again. And then uh, if necessary, we carry out some on-site adjustment. And then every cycle then uh, moves, you know, into... Uh, the next one, and finally, it was a, it was a success story. And my boss and uh, uh, my colleagues, obviously, they they understood the teething problem at the time. And added to that, there was the. Uh, uh, Hanover date in 1997 uh, without the bridge, you know, the airport w w would not be operational. So again, failure 
was not an option. So my colleagues fear under the extreme pressure. You know, I might not uh, have made it. So I remember uh, then on the 18th of March, 1996, the two halves of the Capsimon Bridge met in the in the middle. We lifted the central segment. I remember it was called uh, segment C20. We lifted it from a barge into a final position up in the air, connected it. And uh, I then sent messages back uh, to London reporting the entire bridge being connected and the uh, mission accomplished. How, how do you personally cope working under that level of, that level of pressure, especially when you are working with some 800 designers spread all over the world feeding into this one complex project? I must say it wasn't easy. In my career, in my job, it is still not easy in the present day to cope with unlimited pressures. Perhaps I, uh, I got through by keeping my eyes firmly on the, on the focal points. You know, I don't get uh, distracted easily from the, the ultimate mission. And in my work, I discuss a lot of problem resolution uh, techniques with my colleagues and, and other fellow professionals. I would attribute the final success of Capstone Bridge to, uh, to teamwork, to teamwork. Do you take the same approach of survey, predict, and uh, adjust beyond the uh, just erecting the segments, um, but also into your management style and your engagement with people? Oh, no doubt about it. Uh, I do. I do. I hesitate to call it trial and error. It's not like that at all. By doing the SBIT survey, by doing analysis any time of day, any time of week, we have full knowledge of the behavior of the structure. And by doing predictions, we also we have uh, a sure understanding of how that structure may behave in the future. So we have full control, I repeat, full control of how that bridge is behaving. So whether we're conscious about it or not, we obviously we apply that in our interaction with people and in our project uh, management you know situations. Can you tell us then, looking at the projects that you went on to, the uh, stone cutters and the Sutong bridges, what lessons did you take from the capture min job that you can see directly applied to your approach with these? even larger cable-stayed structures. When those two bridges were completed, they were the world's first longest cable-stayed bridge. Uh, that was the Sutong Bridge. And the second longest uh, cable-stayed bridge, that the uh, Stonecutters Bridge. In that era, a lot of people, even in our own industry, they thought 
the techniques for building cantilever structures, as long as that relating to one kilometer main span was an uncharted territory, and the aerodynamic investigations for cable stavage of one kilometer uh, main span and above. Was very much uh, a subject for exploration. So many people were skeptical about it at the time. We started to work on Stonecutter Bridge before we even heard of Sutong Bridge. So we were told we had the privilege of working on the world's longest uh, cable stay bridge. So we were very, all very proud of it. Then we heard somewhere in China they were going to build an even longer one, so we felt a bit uh, despondent uh, about it. As fate would have it, we then assisted a contractor in China to bid for Shutong Bridge, and the team actually won. And we we had uh, two projects. You know, one for the world's longest cable stage, and the other one for the second longest. The, the two projects were running concurrently at the same time. Uh, it was a very traumatic time for me because the two designs were totally different, and the contractual system for the two projects were also different. Again, the rest of history: the two, the two projects run, you know, for the. Best part of a decade, and then finally we had a claim to fame, having worked on the world's uh, longest and second longest cable stage. In in that era, as I mentioned, a lot of people thought the technology for building these large cable stages, the methods were immature or yet to be invented. And the way we solved the problem was based on the、uh, the experience we learned from building a capsule moon bridge. You know, moving structure suffering from a lot of natural phenomena. So again, we extended the survey prediction adjustment and survey again analysis and survey again conceptual、uh, cycle of work. For these very large cable stay structures, again, any time of day, any time of week, we had full knowledge of how those structures were behaving. Any time of day, we had sure understanding of how they might behave in the future, and thereby would that knowledge. And with the techniques we extended from the Capsule Moon Bridge era, we actually we have very good control over how those structures were behaving. What kind of movement do you get on the horizontal and the vertical as you're extending the cantilever? The conventional、uh, erection method of a suspension bridge is normally control. By the shape geometry of the、uh, the main suspension cables, so we add the bridge girder segments、uh, through hangers one by one onto the global structure, and 
in each cycle of erection, the additional weight of the new segment causes the, the main cable to deform, and all that can be predicted by analysis. In some suspension bridge, particularly the box girder type of, of deck, we start at midspan and we build the segments. We build the girder incrementally towards the towers. In other type of suspension bridges, notably the deep truss type, it's also common to build the trusses from the pylon locations towards the towards the midspan. So, provided you do your analysis and your control, your geometry and stress control, either way, it's feasible. It's feasible. Okay. Suffice to say, the geometry and stress control for uh, cable stay bridges are more demanding than those for a suspension bridge. In our type of work, we refer to a lot of construction conditions and also final bridge compression conditions as targets. For example, when the bridge is completed, it has its given geometry. We can call that a target geometry upon completion. So in each cycle, as we were building the cantilever incrementally, we had that target in mind. All our predictions, uh, possible adjustment, our setting out a lot of our work was aimed to achieve that target. Uh, to make it even more interesting, bridge compression is one target. Time infinity is another target. If you have a concrete material, concrete undergoes shrinkage and creep. They continue, shrinkage and creep continue on after the bridge is completed. Depending on the property of the material used, the future movement arising from sinkage and creep would be different. So we target at time infinity, by which time a lot of, uh, if not all, of the shrinkage and creep will have already taken place. So the bridge geometry and its stress distribution, they, they are stabilized. When it came to the Stonecutters Bridge and the, uh, the Sutong Bridge, it wasn't just the long spans you were having to contend with here. You were having to, to resist typhoon winds. How did you go about that? Bridge aerodynamics is a very involved uh, subject. We carry out like computational analysis to explore the stability of the bridge and the response of the bridge and how much do we have to strengthen its members against the wind loading 
there are other natural phenomena. For example, vortex-induced uh, oscillation. That in itself doesn't tend to cause collapse of the structure. They tend to cause discomfort in the user, whether you are a pedestrian walking on the bridge or whether you are passengers uh, in a vehicle. You feel a certain uh, acceleration in your body. During construction, there's when if vortex excitation occur, the workers are also exposed to discomfort or seasickness. So we need to develop various mitigation measures against uh, vortex oscillation. Is it just a comfort issue or is it a potentially a structural issue as there well? Is, it is a structural issue as well because vortex excitation is cyclic. So it may cause fatigue problem in the material. So we carry out analytical studies to verify all these different uh, aerodynamic phenomena. That in itself is, uh, to my mind, is not enough. We also carry out uh, wind tunnel investigation and we uh, design and plan uh, different types of uh, uh, models and different types of tests in the, in the wind tunnel to explore the response of the uh, models to wind. For vortex-induced uh, motions, for example, there are various mitigation measures. The use of dampers is one method. We design and procure dampers to damp out the oscillations. Now, in terms of instability, we go more fundamental than that. We may have to change the shape of the bridge cross-section. We may have to change the edge detail because some cross-sections are very sensitive to wind through its edge detail. In large bridge projects, particularly with uh, novelty uh, type of bridges, we carry out extensive uh, wind tunnel investigation to really uh, explore all eventualities. It's actually very interesting. It's, it's not an easy subject, but it's a very interesting uh, uh, <laughs> undertaking. We have used many wind tunnel laboratories in the world, so it's, the knowledge is cumulative. So we come back to the original point, you know, every time we work on a new project, we try to benefit from the experience before, from the experience before. There's also the, uh, the desire or the ambition to improve what has been done before 
and perfect a new project. So this is this is what we are, you know, bridge engineers. This is what we are. Just as you've begun perfecting your uh, cable stage bridge construction methodology from the Capshuman onto the stone cutters and the Sutong, you then move on to the Taizhou Bridge, uh, which is a Another six lanes um, carrying traffic over the Yangtze River this time. Two spans of 1,080 meters, so you're beyond a kilometer once again. And here you're hit by a new problem, and that's the, uh, the need to preserve the hydraulic regime of the river. First of all, can you give us an outline to what this project involved, what we're talking about here? The project, it was worth nearly two billion pounds sterling. It takes the form of a 62-kilometer motorway. It connects the cities of Taizhou in the north to Changzhou in the south across the Yangtze River. I often explain to people why we decided to go for a three-pylon suspension bridge. It wasn't just for fun because there was very significant motivation to preserve the river hydraulics uh, regime and also the ecology. So the fewer uh, number of bridge board uh, piers in the water, the better. And a free pylon, two main span uh, suspension bridge scheme uh, enable us to span very large uh, distance. Another motivation was to create as large of a navigation space as possible to cater for future uh, board uh, development near the bridge site. So, well, that was the motivation, but the challenges were phenomenal. With those challenges, in fact, they were some very significant uh, achievement at the time upon which uh, compression, because that kind of structure, free pylon, two main span suspension, but had not been attempted before. The project won many awards for innovation. It was the first attempt to create a long long span, three pylon, and two main span, continuous suspension bridge system. So it wasn't just multiple uh, suspension bridges back to back. This one is a continuous suspension bridge system. It, uh, it was at the time uh, an entirely uh, new area. Uh, in the art and science of uh, bridge engineering. And you probably notice the central pylon is fabricated in steel and is uh, nearly 200 meters tall. So the demand on design, the welding technology, and geometry control were very stringent. And Again, for the central pylon, it demanded the deepest underwater bridge caisson foundation uh, construction. 
it was taxing uh, every aspect of marine uh, concrete technology and erection engineering. Now, something again, you may have noticed the bridge. The bridge has the longest uh, suspension cables. There are two main cables. They are three thousand one hundred and ten meters long, and the technology really they were testing uh, the cable work uh, engineering and the erection engineering at the time. With the project stimulating economic growth in China, this is something you plan to replicate on the Bangladesh project, the Padma Bridge. Can you tell us a bit more about the work in uh, in Bangladesh? I don't know if you've been to Bangladesh at all. I've been there many, many times. And the first time I went there for reconnaissance, I was a little perplexed by children following me and they ask for food, they ask for money. As an engineer, I said to myself, how much money can one give? Surely we need to have a more uh, medium term or a long term solution. So the Padma Bridge Project is a working example of a long term solution. It will connect the capital Dhaka to the the southwest. The southwest tends to be uh, an impoverished region. So with the Padma, traffic and also container heavy rail can go all the way down to the ports uh, at Chittagong on the south coast. So one day, the Padma Bridge, together with its railway, will connect to the Trans-Asian Railway Network. And the goods trains from India can go all the way down to the south coast of Bangladesh. Padma is, once again, it's a two-deck with the road traffic on top and the rail mounted underneath. Indeed. And on a viaduct this time. The viaducts are on land. On land, the, the marine crossing shore to shore is 6.15 kilometers long. But the project involves the motorway network with a great motorway and elevated structures. It involves resettlement of the local inhabitants. It involves riverbank protection. Now, why do we need riverbank protection then? Uh, the Padma River is one of the largest uh, rivers in the world. However, it has the most significant sediment transport. With sediment transport, erosion of the riverbed and the banks occur. And we have studied satellite photographs over a 40-year span. We found the river is never in one place. So if you don't have riverbank protection, you build a bridge. One day the river may short circuit the bridge behind the bridge. So we have um, kilometers worth of riverbank protection to 
stabilize the river. So uh, I'm just marveling at the fact that the risk on this project is that you build a bridge and potentially the river could relocate somewhere else. How, how far up and down the river do you need to go in order to make sure that doesn't happen? And how do you be sure that it's not just going to move around your protection methods further up? We have to design and build 14 kilometers worth of river training work. In other words, river bank uh, protection. There is something else arising from the construction of a major bridge in the Padma River. There is a natural phenomenon called general scour arising from the sediment transport of the river causes erosion in the riverbed. And again, we have taken measurements. We look at satellite pictures. Uh, we carry out analytical, empirical studies. And we also we went to a hydraulic laboratory to study it. So that natural phenomenon is general scour. There is another phenomenon. If you introduce bridge foundations in the, on the riverbed, um, the foundations, they induce local scour. So the sum total, the general scour together with the uh, local scour will undermine the bridge foundations. And our design is based on large diameter, three meter diameter, steel tubular, steel driven piles. Again, you can imagine one day when all the, the worst case scour has occurred, then the piles are exposed for a long length, you know, vertically. Then an earthquake comes along, they will attack the exposed pile. That is a very severe design case. So we, in our design, we had to cater for that uh, very punishing uh, design condition. There are two schools of thought in earthquake uh, design. One is the force-based approach in which you make the structure, the members, stronger and stronger. So the provision of strength is to resist larger and larger earthquakes. But where does it end? How much can you strengthen the structure? So the opposite school of thought is the displacement approach. In that approach, you allow freedom of displacement, the freedom of movement of the bridge, and you avoid the build-up of earthquake forces within your structure. But if not properly controlled, the displacements may be very large. So the bridge is not very uh, good in its performance or in its uh, serviceability. So we solved that problem by designing and installing seismic isolation between the girder and the pier top. We design friction pendulum bearings. In short, there's the upper part and the lower part of the bearing. Both are of spherical shape. So the top one runs on the, the bottom one along an arc 
of a circle. So you can imagine the net displacement is manageable. They go uphill and downhill rather than sideways. So the resultant displacement is limited, but there's absolutely freedom of movement. So in the event of an earthquake, the friction pendulum bearing components, the top part and the bottom part, they just run over each other uphill and downhill, and they avoid the build-up of earthquake forces. So the advantages we have gained from that is we finally arrived at six number large diameter steel piles in the power group. So it's very economic. At the same time, in the truss, the steel truss girder, we managed to make the truss members to work more optimally and also the the trust members, they remained in the elastic region. So we have trimmed down uh, the member sizes and saved a lot on the material quantities. So this is uh, what I consider a seismic resilient and scour tolerant uh, structure. Your career to date has been each project building upon the experiences of the one before and additional iteration, something you learned, something you applied to the next job. What comes next for you? Every time I think about that, I have images of the first scene and the last scene of the film, the film called Chariot of Fire. I remember those Olympic efforts. They were practicing at West Sand, St. Andrews. So what, what was on their minds was pretty much a desire, a desire to uh, strive for achievement and, the, and uh, to uh, attain the joy one can derive from achievement. So I am pretty much in that uh, state of mind. You mentioned every time we do something new, we want to learn from past experience and do it better this time. I yearn to develop new types of uh, bridges that can span larger and larger distance. But I want to do, do it more efficiently and more economically. I've been working on third-generation suspension bridges, like twin girder with an air gap in between, and they are lightweight, aerodynamically superior, but they have some blemishes. My fellow professionals and co-workers, they know very sure what these blemishes or imperfections are. So my aspiration is to how to overcome this imperfection and make these kind of uh, third generation suspension bridges perform better. Engineering Matters is a production of Rebe Media. Many thanks for my guest today, Dr. Robin Sham of AECOM and to the Institution of Civil Engineers. This show was produced by Bernadette Ballantyne and hosted by me, John Young. Fact Checker was Rhea Known. The theme tune comes from JM Sounds. For more episodes of Engineering Matters, go to rebe.media. Bernadette will be back here in two weeks with more.